Hey everyone, Derek here from Conspirituality. I didn't grow up in a very culinary family, but my Eastern European roots did afford me the ability to cook a pretty good chicken paprikash. It's actually one of the few meals from my upbringing that I was very fond of. And I like to prep all of my food in advance, usually hours before, so that way when I get down to cooking, it's all ready for me. In fact, I used all of the chicken in my last shipment of ButcherBox to cook chicken paprikash. It is definitely a favorite here. ButcherBox really allows you to have everything on hand so that when you are ready to make your meal, you pop it out of the freezer, give it a day, and you're ready to go. Right now, ButcherBox is offering Conspirituality listeners your choice of a weeknight meal must-have for free in every order for a whole year. So that's either three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or a pound of steak tips. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Hey everyone, welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Julian Walker. If you want to keep up with us on social media, our Instagram account is ConspiritualityPod. And in addition to these weekly Thursday episodes, we also regularly drop briefs on Saturdays where each of us has an opportunity to explore a topic that we want to take on. Uh, This past weekend, I created one that was sort of following on last week's anti-sunscreen episode where we had a whole segment talking about Sarah Aniano about anti-Semitism in the anti-sunscreen movement. So on Saturday, I got to talk to the banter founder, Ben Cohen, about his experiences as a political reporter covering anti-Semitism as well as what it's like to be a Jew in America coming from the UK and about his experiences with anti-Semitism here. For those inspired to support our work, we also have Monday premium bonus episodes on both Patreon and Apple subscriptions. Uh, Patreon supporters do also get all of our episodes ad-free and can even choose to access our behind-the-scenes videos and live streams. For this past Monday's bonus, Matthew took a quite nuanced look at the controversy from last month that he referred to as the Dalai Lama spectacle. Conspirituality 154, The Truth Wars with Rene DiResta. In the post-truth world, journalists who report facts are disparaged as perpetuating the narrative, while candidates who actually hold the appropriate qualifications to be in government are often smeared as deep state operatives. Likewise, a career spent studying terrorism, online conspiracy theories, and digital propaganda translates through the looking glass as obvious evidence of opposing free speech and the American way. This past April, Our guest today became the main character on Twitter, subject to information requests from Congress, labeled the leader of the censorship industrial complex from her supposed perch at the center of a conspiracy web in which big tech, government intelligence agencies, and woke university think tanks secretly silenced free speech online. Her name is Renee DiResta, and we talked about what her extensive study of online propaganda starting under the Obama administration, 
tells us about the unfolding digital information crisis, of which the Twitter files may well actually just be the most recent example. So, Derek, you know I couldn't wait to talk to Renee. We actually had postponed our interview because the week that it was scheduled for turned out to be the week that Michael Schellenberger and Jim Jordan decided she was public enemy number one. So for context, we should back up a little and mention the series of bonus episodes you and I did as the Twitter files were unfolding, because that's all prelude to where we find ourselves at today. And by the way, it's also informed by free speech warrior Elon Musk this past week being perfectly willing to censor Erdogan's opponents on Twitter to keep generating ad impressions in Turkey and lick the boots of a guy who has jailed comedians for making fun of him. Yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, He's going after Soros now, of course, again, but Mm -hmm. really digging in. Uh, I saw some people on Twitter tag your bonus episode, or the brief actually reframing George Soros, or framing George Soros, right? So maybe Elon, I'm sure Elon's going to listen and take a nuanced look after that. (laughs) But for us, we had the pleasure of listening to too many hours of Russell Brand as he appointed himself the modern moderator of all things Twitter files. He had Matt Taibbi on, Barry Weiss, he had Alex Berenson. They were all on his Rumble show over the last few months. He also later had Michael Schellenberger on, but we didn't get to that yet. Maybe we'll have to go back to that one. But I have to say, it was really hard-hitting journalism. And by that, I mean he conceded every point each person made as part of the grand conspiracy of the Biden administration and other deep state operatives colluding to stop free speech in America, and by which I mean that it was all small amounts of actual reporting under a deluge of Russell Brand's trademark bullshit. That's right. We started with Russell's breathless coverage, uh, first with his interview of Matt Taibbi and Russell uh, ensconced in his new headquarters at Rumble because, you know, having five million followers on YouTube is evidence of really unfair censorship. And then poor old journalist in exile, Matt Taibbi, who's raking in around $500,000 a year from his Substack, according to the data, uh, that Substack ended up being, of course, a source of tension between Matt Taibbi and Elon, because these are all incredibly like, you know, these are all relationships of convenience uh, and and of narcissistic self-interest. And so uh, Elon had blocked tweets from including links to Substack pages, uh, which prompted Elon, uh, which prompted, excuse me, Matt to say he was leaving. And then he started posting quite frequently on True Social. He seems to post on Twitter still. I don't really know what's going on there. (laughs) You know, Julian, we are a podcast about misinformation. Russell has 6 million YouTube followers. Oops. So I would appreciate if you paid attention to him on a daily basis more often. Yeah, the censorship is really hurting him. It's really hurting him. (laughs) Now, I don't want to give away anything from your wonderful interview with Renee. I'm a big fan. I've been following her for a while. So it's great to hear her and have her on. But at one point, she says something to the effect that she presented all of their requested information to Taibbi and Berenson before the congressional hearing, and yet they ignored it and moved ahead with their conspiratorial fear-mongering in front of Congress anyway. 
And that really drives home the point that Matt's journalism is just a charade. And it truly is sad. I've read his books in the past. Uh, He's always been super opinionated. Uh, He was at Rolling Stone for a long time, and they're famous for their gonzo journalism. He, for a while, was considered to be taking up that mantle of the modern gonzo journalist. Um, And Rolling Stone is the organization that basically invented the style, right? But I don't know what character would Matt actually be these days. Would he be the Swedish chef? Because he's not Gonzo anymore. Gurbity, gurbity, gurbity. He's definitely not Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what I hear every time he tries to mumble his way through his lies, like when Mehdi Hassan took him to task recently. Ooh, that was a thing of beauty. <laughs> yeah, incredible, incredible. Uh, next up was Barry Weiss whose Substack, I should point out, by the way, is drawing in 800000 And she's kind of turning it into a company where she has other uh, people working for her that she's paying, it would appear. Um, she lasted even less time, though, in Elon's good graces. He bumped her from the Twitter files dream team after she criticized the free speech absolutist for banning an account he had explicitly said he would never ban like a week before <laughs> Our third episode in that series, as you pointed out, uh, followed Russell then bringing on Alex Berenson, who by that time uh, had appeared, who by the time he appeared with Russell had already been kicked out of Twitter Files coverage by Elon for his own breach of etiquette around whether you put things on Substack first or on Twitter first and how the links go like out. You know, there was almost a year of my life where I was laid up in bed because of a broken femur. This was in 1986. And my grandmother came over to take care of me most days because she was retired and my parents were not. And during that time, I got very into soap operas because I would watch whatever my grandmother was watching. Uh, Even at that age of 11, I was able to distinguish between reality and soap operas, but I don't think the culture always can because when I hear stories like this, like Barry removing someone they said they wouldn't, I mean, it is just a soap opera. And Barry is definitely another opportunist in this entire equation. And just like Taibi, I liked her work previously, even if I didn't agree with her, but now she's relegated to spreading anti-trans rhetoric on Substack and not correcting her errors when pointed out, which happened recently. And she's working on her fake university in Austin. Uh, It seems like every industry she wants to reform, she just ends up spinning more of the same but worse. And as for Berenson, that dude has always been manipulative. Uh, Anyone who writes a book falsifying cannabis studies to try to frame it in a legit 1980s marijuana will fry your brain rhetoric is going to be suspect. (laughs) Yeah, reefer madness. And he also... uh... He also has found a significant acclaim and success as a, a writer of spy novels. He's got a spy novel series, and it, it just appears that that also bleeds over. He maybe can't tell the difference either. I love that you went to like the old school yeah. soap operas because I'm thinking of that classic trope where the character wakes up and is looking in the mirror, and and the the weird harp music is playing like a whole tone scale. <laughs> that was Christian like, Northrup. Yeah, <laughs> that was Christian Northrup playing, and they they have amnesia because all of these players have amnesia amnesia about anything that happened before they got the tap from Elon. And they're like, oh, what's going on? Everyone's being censored. It's terrible. We're going to save America for democracy by platforming a bunch. And the thing about this too, is they also have amnesia about 
the real process of journalism that would have gotten them to where they were before all of this, right? And some of that you can only imagine included relationships with editors who really knew what they were doing. And they're really suffering from the lack of those relationships. I think we need a conspirituality version of Yacht Rock for our cohort of people. <laughs> I think I, if, if we had more time and budget, uh, even though Yacht Rock was very low budget, I think we could pull it off very well. <laughs> that could be something. So these are the players. Uh, we've not said much about the content of the Twitter files because mostly it was really unremarkable. But by the time we got to Taibi and Schellenberger, showing up in front of Jim Jordan's House subcommittee on the weaponization of the government, the talking points had shifted from promises of Hunter Biden revelations about election interference that never really came, and then moaning about how anti-vax and COVID-denying doctors like Jay Bhattacharya had been shadow banned, to how the supposed pseudo-academic scam of disinformation studies and this ominous-sounding collusion between university think tanks U.S. intelligence agencies and big tech had hidden the truth about the pandemic, silenced right-wing voices, and boosted the mainstream narrative on behalf of the left. So this then found Rene Resta and her colleagues being named as central to this vast conspiracy, labeled, and I think they coined the term on that, on that day in front of Jim Jordan, the censorship industrial complex. And this prompted our episode uh, 147, titled The Censorship Megaphone, in which we showed how conspiritualists have actually been laughing all the way to the bank as their claims of being unfairly censored seem to actually be a kind of skeleton key or password onto bigger and bigger platforms and therefore more exposure and more revenue. Nothing brings in revenue like telling your millions of followers that you're being censored on every social media platform that exists. That said, great interview with Renee, Julian. Again, I really enjoyed it. And you mentioned this during the talk, but there are a lot of important layers here. So I want to say this to listeners. I recommend not listening to this if you're multitasking because it's really important information. Renee puts out a compelling argument for the spread of misinformation and disinformation here, including why she doesn't like those terms and how they operate in our society. And it really does inform so much of what we've been trying to tackle for three years now on this podcast. We'll turn now to our interview. Renee DeResta's academic background is in computer science and political science. She's the technical research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. At the behest of the SSCI, Renee led investigations into the Russian Internet Research Agency's multi-year effort to manipulate American society, and she presented public testimony before the Senate. She led an additional investigation into Russian hack and leak operations in the 2016 election as well. Renee studies online pseudoscience conspiracies, terrorist activity, and state-sponsored information warfare. She has advised Congress and the State Department on the topic. She also writes for Wired and The Atlantic and has been featured on too many media outlets to list here. Amongst her many distinguished fellowships and consulting roles, she is a team member on the Council on Foreign Relations and a Truman National Security Fellow. Renee DeResta, welcome to Conspirituality. Thank you for having me. We have so much to discuss. <laughs> First of all, how are you doing? 
Uh, I'm good. I mean, it's been a it's been a very interesting month, but uh, two months now, I think. But you know, it's it's not the first go round with people on the internet uh, being mad at me. So occupational hazard, it turns out. Yeah, I would imagine not. All right, so I want to hit on several topics across your already really noteworthy career, but I, I really think, as you just indicated. We have to start with what's been going on in the last six weeks or two months to set the scene as part of the hoopla around the so-called Twitter files. Now, independent Substack journalist Matt Taibbi and noted climate denialism writer Michael Schellenberger go before the House Select Subcommittee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. This is on March 9th. And there they either coin or popularize this now somewhat ubiquitous term, the censorship industrial complex. Their online writing on this topic and testimony to the committee allege that they've uncovered a plot between government intelligence agencies, big tech platforms, university research facilities and think tanks to censor right wing voices under the guise of protecting Americans from what they term so-called misinformation or disinformation. Then a couple of weeks later, ProPublica reported that the head of that committee, Jim Jordan, had issued sweeping official information requests. At first, they reported them as subpoenas, but later corrected them uh, for documents from three universities and one think tank. And you are named in that article alongside Alex Stamos and Nina Jankowicz. So first of all, is that about right? Did I miss anything? And then second, What's happened since then with regard to media coverage, online activity, and those information requests? How has this all affected you and your colleagues? So, yeah, that's all, that's all accurate. The Committee on the Weaponization of the, uh, of the Government, this is uh, you know, chaired by uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, it was created in part as Congressman McCarthy was trying to solidify his leadership role. And so this committee was created in part to ostensibly look at abuses by the federal government in a variety of different areas, um, particularly areas like Hunter Biden's laptop and these other sort of shibboleths that really, um, really dominate um, the way that conservatives think about how they are treated online, how they are treated by the government, and whether there is uh, collusion between big tech and government. So that's the uh, the kind of environment under which the committee is operating. One of the first hearings of the Judiciary Committee actually brought in executives from Twitter and asked them to comment on these things. And that was, uh, you know, that was a big, big hearing. And then the, what we might call the Twitter files hearing uh, came a little bit after that. And shortly after that, uh, we received this, this letter. Uh, and we are one of, I think, ProPublica got four to confirm on the record, but it's actually many more than that. So this is really quite a very broad, expansive effort uh, to to try to get emails between academics and the government or academics and the tech companies uh, in an effort to find this theoretical collusion. What is interesting about this uh, is that if you actually watch the hearings or if you go and read you know, Mr. Schellenberger's testimony, which is something like 60 pages long, his written testimony, what they are articulating, this allegation of a vast collusion effort to censor, in, in their words, I believe uh, 22 million tweets and uh, just, you know, sometimes it's in the millions, sometimes like when Schellenberger went on Rogan, it jumped all of a sudden into the billions, you know, this argument actually is not found nor supported by anything in the actual Twitter files. It comes from a group called Foundation for Freedom Online, uh, which I believe is actually just one guy, but it calls itself an organization, a man named Mike Benz. 
And Mr. Benz uh, has been, he was a Trump appointee in the State Department for a period of, I think, just a few months, uh, but has refashioned himself as a whistleblower. And since approximately August of last year, had been writing these stories, these very, very sensational claims, misinterpreting research that we had published nearly two years prior. And that is where these claims about 22 million tweets and a lot of the other things that they say come from. So the Twitter files authors connected with this individual in a Twitter spaces, uh, Tybee connected with Ben's in a Twitter spaces and began to, uh, you know, Ben said, you know, oh, I have the, uh, the kind of keys to the kingdom. The AI can uncover the full conspiracy for you. You can only see bits and pieces of it in the Twitter files, but let me tell you the rest. Uh, and in this, um, in this remarkable exchange, Tybee is extremely excited about this, invites him to come on, you know, come on, be part of the team. We're going to dismantle the, um, the, uh, this, this censorship industrial complex, this media collusion effort with tech and, uh, and you know, the, the sort of usual things that they write. And that's where that connection was made. And so at the time, I had been speaking with Mr. Schellenberger for a period of a couple months. Um, and so I was rather blindsided to wake up to this written testimony that just regurgitated all of these claims that we had actually responded to months prior, but all of a sudden there they were in the congressional record. So those claims were not actually found in the Twitter files. There are no internal emails within Twitter that suggest that 22 million tweets were censored or billions of tweets or millions of Americans because it didn't happen. Mm. And so this is just the, the connection of these two communities uh, really kind of came together in that hearing. And it was you know, just as a, as a person who studies how these things happen, it's very fascinating to see when you become the main character of it. Uh, but again, this understanding of how this this laundering tends to occur, and uh, and and again, the the complexity even in my 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 three minute explanation here has probably lost half the listeners because it requires understanding a whole <laughs> lot of you know different pieces and and narratives that have been motion for the better part of six months. Yeah, I mean that's that's possible, but we're we're going to keep unpacking and contextualizing everything. That's that. <laughs> That is fascinating uh, to, to get some more detail on that. I noticed with some pleasure the irony that you replied to Michael Schellenberger's statements and characterizations in some depth on March 31st by publishing three articles to your own Substack. These consisted in the entire text of a long unpublished interview you did with him, as well as then his abridged version, which I understand he quoted from in his con congressional testimony, yes, uh, despite it not already being in, in the public record, right? No, he never published it. Yeah. And then you also revealed uh, extensive text messages between the two of you spanning back several months, uh, seeming like a, a sort of friendly uh, interview process. He has since fired back with a Substack piece now on April 3rd, calling you in the title, the leader why you are the leader of the censorship industry. <laughs> so, I mean, what, how do you make sense of, of, of all of these interactions of how he's now represented your work of the way that this, because you said you were surprised. Um, this, this is bizarre. Well, I think one of the, the easiest explanation is of course um, the obvious, which is in all of those Substack posts, many of them are behind a paywall. And so by, uh, you know, by whenever you have a conspiracy theory, you need some main characters, right? You need some organizations, you need some people. I was selected <laughs> uh, to be that person. And so, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm fairly public. I've written about topics of content moderation for about seven years now. I've 
published pretty extensively on it. I've never been shy about sharing my opinions on it. Again, this was why I was engaging with him for a period of several months because I thought, okay, well, we're going to have yeah. we're going to have a conversation. Reasonable people can disagree about certain aspects of content moderation, and let's find out where those disagreements are, and let's and let's go through them. And the question that I ask over and over and over again in my texts is, what do you think should happen? What what do you believe should happen here? And we can table that for a second just to go a little bit more into the the dynamics of um, of what's happened with you know this characterization of me again anytime you have a narrative with a lot of different moving parts creating one person and turning them into the mastermind is a, is a fairly established trope right the the evil genius behind the curtain mm-hmm. and you can see the just the hallmarks of a basic smear campaign you know Schellenberger his backgrounds in PR he knows how to do this he knows how to tell a story he knows how to create characters and so you see things like um, CIA fellow Rene Duresta, I believe is how he refers to me. Uh-huh. And this is, you know, <laughs> so I was, uh, I was an intern for the agency when I was an undergrad. And this has never been a secret. Everyone who knows me knows it. Can I just say right here that the gotcha of like posting a link to a YouTube video that's been up for, I don't know, many, I don't years, know how many years, years. in which... <laughs> A throwaway comment. You're being introduced as a speaker and there's this throwaway comment that you had done some work for the CIA and it's like, it's now on your Wikipedia page. Yeah, well, it was sort of a joke. I mean, it was uh, because again, it was never a, because it was such a early, you know, internship experience again, 20 years ago, the Alex is, you know, when, when he says this again, keep, as you know, it was a room full of people, a recorded live streamed event. If it was something that was a secret, we sure did a bad job of keeping it, you know. And so his joke, oh, Renee used to work for the CIA, is, is exactly playing on what Schellenberger plays on, right? Which is the, uh, this, um, this idea of the shady, secretive, spooky organization, right? It's very mysterious. And so you can either be framed as like an international woman of mystery in this, you know, this sort of funny intro that he did, uh, or you can turn it into the unsavory deep state association, right? And that's what Schellenberger does. And it's, again, it's a very, you know, it's a very established tactic. He was a PR flack for Hugo Chavez, right? And so you could go with Hugo Chavez PR flack, Michael Schellenberger, which is about as accurate as CIA fellow Rene Duresta. These are things that are both true, but... I, he, I believe, was a flack for Hugo Chavez 20 years ago. And so one might argue that that might not be necessarily his motivating force or his driving force today. But you can create that insinuation. You can use that innuendo by taking a thing that is true, grain of truth, and just taking it out of context or presenting it to an audience that's not familiar with the specifics. And you can do that very dishonestly. And, uh, you know, as a, as a PR flack, he happens to be good at it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly a part of the conspiracy theorist playbook to make insinuations of shadowy unknown implications that we then can stitch together into proving some narrative that we're pushing. I want to back up a little now, because as you just said, the reason that you've become the target of what I see as an opportunistic and sensationalist slander that uh, drives, you know, Substack subscriptions is that in fact, you are one of the world's foremost experts on digital disinformation. And I want our listeners to really benefit from your expertise. So let me set the scene again 
in terms of kind of both of our origin stories. Here at Conspirituality, we start from how during the pandemic, the wellness space became a vector of right-wing conspiracism. And one of the topics we've covered is how as 2020 unfolded, wellness entrepreneurs already had a well-oiled influence machine at the ready to monetize misinformation and pseudoscience. And that readiness, of course, relied on how e-commerce tools, like having a website, an email list, online books or video courses, and a facility with social media branding and marketing gave their initial outsider commentaries on the crisis immediate access to trusting established audiences, many of whom were now stuck at home under quarantine. And so the viral appeal of contrarianism and fear-mongering would then deliver the lucrative metrics of likes and shares and views and comments and ballooning follower counts. And these incentives got the escalation cycle churning. And what we've tracked is how that typically moved a little further to the political right with each cycle. Um, All the while, these conspiritualist influencers, as, as we name them, cashed in on the crisis. You've studied and written extensively on the underlying conditions for situations like this and how as the number of social media users and posts exploded over time, the sorting algorithms that prioritized and recommended both content and who to follow shaped platform patrons into affinity groups and target demographics ripe not only for commercial but also for ideological persuasion. So that might be a a very condensed summary of of things I've heard you talk about and things that we cover. Tell us then, if we go back a little in terms of your history, how you saw these dynamics playing out during the Obama administration as you interacted with anti-vax propaganda about SB 277 here in California, and then into studying how ISIS was using social media as a tool of radicalization? That's a great question. As you were talking, I was thinking about the early days of the pandemic. And the first thing that, um, the first thing that I did in, in early 2020 that I got very interested in, as, as it became clear that this was going to be a pandemic uh, and not going to stay confined to China, was I actually started paying attention. I went back and I, and I started looking at a lot of the old anti-vaccine networks that I had paid attention to in 2015. Uh, because as you note, there are a few, a few different things in play. First, there is the way that information moves today. It happens on particular structures, right? It happens on social media platforms. But more specific than that, the information kind of cascades across networks of users. And you have influencers um, who, as you kind of articulate, sometimes have economic motivations, uh, sometimes are true believers themselves. Uh, then you have crowds of fans, right? So you have the influencer and the crowd. And the two different distinct types of user work together to propel messages across networks. And the anti-vaccine movement was very, very, very good at this, even dating back to 2015. And one of the reasons for that was that when certain of their claims, and again, long pre-COVID, this was mostly the sort of MMR, uh, the, the MMR conspiracy theories about autism, um, and then the sort of sadder ones uh, in which they believed that vaccines caused SIDS. Um, these were the narratives that they believed they had to convey to the world in, in 2015. And they did this through networked communication. So everybody was actually really moving in lockstep 
around putting out the same kind of content, around boosting each other's content. It's very networked communication dynamic. One of the things that we noticed as we paid attention you know, to the way that narratives moved during SB 277, uh, which was a law to eliminate um, personal belief exemptions to require measles vaccines for kindergartners in public schools in California. This followed very closely after the Disneyland measles outbreak. So that was the environment in which um, I started paying attention at the time. I was a mom who believed that children should be vaccinated for measles to go to school. And so I thought, okay, well, let me try to understand how this network works. What was very interesting about it was that as we tried to map the conversation around SB 277, just looking at that hashtag, what we started to notice was that the public health communicators were almost entirely outside of it. So these were complete parallel universes. You can see this laid out very beautifully on Twitter, and I wrote an article about it for Wired. We articulated, um, so that's that's the kind of structure piece, right? How information moves. And then you have the substance, which is what are they saying, right? And again, you have in the anti-vaccine community, you have storytelling, you have first-person lived experiences. You have a mom turning on her computer, sit, you know, sitting in her kitchen, telling a story about why she believes her child is autistic following an MMR vaccine. And that is an incredibly powerful thing, right? That is a very, it's an emotional thing. It, it really hits you. And then you have, okay, what does the CDC say about this? Well, they put out a fact sheet, you know? <laughs> and so at the time, what I was arguing um, was that institutional communicators, public health entities did not understand that the way people communicated had changed. And they did not understand, you know, other people were saying this too, you know, Tara Smith, Anakata, there were a bunch of academic papers on it at the time that I was just, you know, sort of an activist on the outside saying this in places like Wired. But, but beginning to say, hey, the, the way that people understand things is changing and you guys have to adapt. You have to begin to understand the power of storytelling and, and the way that the network moves the information, the way that the network selects the most resonant information and chooses what to propagate because people become the sharers. So fast forward, we can go back, we can revisit that in the context of COVID. Um, but you asked about ISIS. Around the same time, what was very interesting, and I was only kind of nominally paying attention to it, but it was the, um, the ISIS fanboys on Twitter. So platforms had begun to realize that this terrorist organization was trying to create what they called the virtual caliphate. And they were using social media platforms to do it. And again, you had the structure, right? You had the amplifier networks. You had the people who were the core creators, the sort of ISIS influencers, if you will. And these two groups, again, kind of worked together using the tools that the platforms had given everybody and anybody to spread this very particular type of propaganda, which was the glorification propaganda, the propaganda of a brand new state, a brand new, you know, caliphate emerging and the, the very, uh, all the trappings of propaganda, the iconography, the, the, the videos, the recruitment videos were, I don't mean the beheading videos, I don't mean the gore, uh, that kind of stuff usually came down quite quickly, but I mean the, there was a video called No Respite, uh, it was one of their recruitment videos and it looked like a video game. It was, it was, again, the, the soaring cadence, you must come here, you know, fight the good fight. And just the, the way in which propaganda had moved into this environment was happening there as well. And so everybody had all of a sudden been given these tools to create influential figures and associated crowds relying on algorithms for amplification and affordances for amplification. And all of a sudden, anybody could do it. And so I wound up getting asked to kind of weigh in on that in part just because I was um I was I was doing I think some of the more detailed documentation of how it was 
working in this other space. And, you know, I said, Hey, I don't know anything about, about terrorism or ISIS. And they said, well, that's okay. You know, we're, we're more interested in hearing from people who understand the internet. And, and that was how that connection was made. And really for me, you know, it still stayed kind of largely a thing that I was just doing at night. You know, I had a, I had a tech startup in logistics at the time, but it became something of a passion. Really, how do we understand who has influence, what that looks like, how that works and how opinions are shaped today? So that was my sort of unexpected uh, career change. This is a, a question I know you get asked a lot and I've, and I've, I've heard you do some really um, concise sort of explanations along the lines of what you were just saying about how... Uh, misinformation and disinformation can move across different, uh, different platforms or different types of media. And the, the, so I guess I want to ask you, let's just, let's just define disinformation versus misinformation. And then the understanding I've extracted is that perhaps they start to shade into each other as those distribution cycles translate across different types of media or, you know, whether it's a, a website or a social media platform, et cetera. Tell us about that. So misinformation is a word that's generally used to mean things that are inadvertently wrong. So the person who is sharing them doesn't realize that they're wrong. Usually there's a highly altruistic motivation. They want to inform their community. They want to give them, you know, what they believe to be good information. Disinformation is a term that kind of dates to the Cold War, disinformatia, um, a kind of KGB era Soviet term that refers to uh, the idea that you can manipulate the discourse, right? Information with an intent to deceive. Uh, There is something inherently manipulative about it. Sometimes, quite often, it's miscategorized as false. Mm -hmm. That is only sometimes true. And that's because you should think about it I I actually don't really love these two terms. I've I've had a kind of a mixed mixed feelings about them um, for a few years now, in part because misinformation can you know it's kind of a standalone thing. It's, people make mistakes, they say the wrong thing. It is what it is. But disinformation really is a very particular class of propaganda. And so if you think about it in that regard. Um, a lot of what it is, is what used to be called black propaganda, propaganda where the origin is obscured. It is uh, a message that doesn't necessarily have to be true, but there is something that is inauthentic about it. It is coming through a channel that is inaccurate. It takes a grain of truth and manipulates it. And so disinformation really is much more in, in you know, in how I, how I tend to think about it, how we think about it at SIO, much more falls in the realm of that that deliberate intent to deceive, uh, that deliberate intent to be manipulative, sometimes through the use of fake accounts now or front media properties in the olden days and now. Uh, Sometimes it's trying to manipulate algorithms for certain types of enhanced distribution. Sometimes it is the content, sometimes the content is false. And now as we move into the realm of generative AI, uh, you know, we have this whole new (laughs) world of unreality that we're going to experience together. Um, So there is this it, but ultimately, I think it really, the differentiator is that that idea of intent. Disinformation does it from the standpoint of the deliberate manipulation of the target audience, the target population. It, it seems like part of the structure of these kinds of campaigns can sometimes be that disinformation is deliberately created and shared in a particular way. And then that gets picked up and translates across multiple different uh, sort of areas of distribution or, or modes of distribution and perhaps gets to the point where it's being shared by people who sincerely 
believe that this is an, an important perspective, right? Right. And that has always been the goal, right? And, and that was where, if you looked at um, some of the canonical old cases, what was called Operation Denver uh, during the Cold War, the attempt to make people in the United States believe that the CIA had created AIDS, you see what's called, you know, it's called narrative laundering. Um, it's, it's where a doctored document or a misleading claim appears in a front media or paid media or the author of the media is somehow compromised. And so that initial seed is planted. And what you start to see is other outlets begin to quote that outlet. And then this claim begins to appear. And in the days of print media, that takes at times weeks to months, you know, for that, uh, for that transition to happen. In the age of social media, that that's changed in two ways. First, it's accelerated in speed. So that kind of uh, information cascade, that narrative cascade happens very, very fast. And second, it's often even better if it doesn't appear in media because particularly for audiences that are very distrustful of media, having it move through the peer-to-peer -peer distribution chain is actually, it's far, fast, far, far faster, it's far more persuasive because it's coming from someone who's just like you. And so you're in a different mindset when you receive it. And it, you know, it, it is conveyed through people who hear something that they're inclined to believe and then go on to propagate it. And so this is where what you see from state actors like Russia who have used disinformation, again, going back, uh, going back that decades to centuries, <laughs> what, what we're seeing is an adaptation for a new system, a new environment, and a new way in which people persuade each other much more directly, as opposed to having to go through the slow process of laundering a narrative through a bunch of media properties. You know, as an aside here, I just can't help but, but comment on how we seem to be in this very strange situation where uh, in the US, half of the population maybe uh, thinks that there is a disinformation crisis in the way that you describe. And the other half thinks that legacy media and people like yourselves and, and like us are actually the ones who are the patsies, who, who are sort of, right. you know, continuing to perpetuate the mainstream narrative, which is real. We're not skeptical enough about how CNN, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, NPR are, are just like manipulating uh, the hell out of us and, and spreading lies. Like how it's, it, it's such a it's such a strange predicament. How what would you say to someone who says, "Oh, that's all very well and good that you're skeptical in this way, but you haven't gone far enough." Here's how you've been fooled. It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, first of all, media gets things wrong. One of the things that you want to see from an outlet that is trustworthy is that they correct themselves when they get things wrong, right? And that doesn't always happen as quickly as it could. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Um, I think that. One of the reasons why this has become such a topic of conversation or such a focus is that people are very attuned to the extent of the distrust. Everybody kind of thinks that it's the other side <laughs> that is distrustful or too trustful, or, you know. Um, but that 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 central crisis of trust, I think, is really one of the uh, one of the things that is driving this and propelling it. And and it is, I think, we we talk we overfocus, particularly in academia, on what we might call the supply of disinformation. Where does it come from? Who is producing it? Um, when the receptivity piece really is 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 more a question of demand, right? Why do people believe what they believe? Why do they trust who they trust? And and how does that how does that happen? And one of the things that I've been um, spending a lot of time on actually is the old books 
um, about rumors. I don't know if you've ever read any of them, but there is a um, a book that that I've become kind of entranced with. Uh, written, I think, in I think it was in the late seventies, maybe early eighties, by a man. His last name is Capferer. He describes the phenomenon of the rumor mill. And it's absolutely fascinating because you you read it and and I think like why we're talking about misinformation as if the problem is falsifiable facts. It is not, right? It is that people don't necessarily trust the information they're hearing. They also are now accustomed to getting information very, very quickly. And so journalism, the entire kind of premise of journalism was around the idea that there would be some friction created through a process of fact checking that would through a process of investigations and research, come up with an understanding of the world. But that takes time. You saw this very acutely during COVID when we, you know, we're all doom scrolling, checking our phones constantly, trying to get the latest piece of information about this thing that is so important to us. It, it is, in fact, in the early days, a matter of life and death. And so everybody is very attuned to their devices. They want information then. But that's not the speed at which we actually arrive at facts. So in this book uh, about rumors, what he describes is this process by which you have these people who are really inherently good people. Again, that same kind of misinformation dynamic, the altruistic motivation, but they don't necessarily know if they trust what the media is saying. And so what they do is you see this characterization of rumors as like an alternative to media. Media uh, an oral culture, peer-to-peer media, if you will, where people say, hey, I heard this thing about this person and you should know. Or I heard this thing about this politician and you need to know. Or I heard this thing about this restaurant where people are getting sick and you need to know. And so all of these these pieces of information are, they're not necessarily verified, but they seem very important. And so people share them. And so a lot of what I what I think about when I look at social media today is how this is, this is I think, actually a much more appropriate description of the kind of environment that we all find ourselves in. People don't know what to trust. They kind of trust their friends or their peers. Their friends or their peers are the people that they hang out with on social media now, not necessarily people they even know in the real world. And that's where they're getting their, you know, their, their kind of community from. And so if you trust the influencer and you trust the other members of the crowd, you're going to kind of continue to share it on. And that's the... And that's kind of the real, I think, driver. It's, it's this sort of, everybody has a kind of alternative back channel chatter to whatever the official narrative is. And that it, it, it's not the same <laughs> in different communities, but the phenomenon, I think, is the same. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, let's, uh, let's move to your work on understanding Russian online interference during the 2016 election. I know this is covering territory. You've gone over quite a bit in public, but I thought we should revisit it because one pervasive theme I've noticed around the Twitter files is that government agencies in concert with big tech have supposedly been censoring right-wing voices by using this bogus cover of trying to combat disinformation. I've even heard uh, disinformation studies described as a pseudo-academic scam 
this is then often dovetailed with the assertion that the Russia probe was nothing but a misguided left-wing conspiracy theory. So if the caricature that gets labeled as the Russia hoax boils down to something like, well, the Russians just spent a paltry hundred grand on Facebook ads, uh, so what? And the Steele dossier has been discredited. And in the end, the Mueller report showed no collusion. Does that mean this was all just a nothing burger, Rene DiResta? <laughs> it's a great question. First of all, I would say I do not ever know what people mean when they say Russiagate. I think I always ask the question, what do you, what do you mean by that specifically? Because I think that, so I, I can talk a little bit about um, the work that I did and how it fit into the broader space at the time. But there were two very, very, very different sets of questions that were being asked. The first, which was the one that I was asked to look at, was with these data sets, which to be clear, were attributed by the tech companies, not by me, by the tech companies, and they were turned over to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And then a few different groups of researchers were given access to these data sets and we were uh, blinded. We, we did not know who the other uh, researchers were. And the reason that they did that was because they wanted to make sure that no one group, you know, if there was some uh, bias, if there was um, findings that alleged, you know, that overstated a conclusion to a degree or said something, you have to remember this was very, very sensitive, right? This was this question of, did the, you know, was the Russian effort, what was it doing was the question. And if the answer included was trying to help elect President Trump, uh, that, that's a bit of a political minefield. And so having multiple different groups have access to the same data, the entire effort there was to try to, uh, to minimize, um, you know, ideological bias to the greatest extent possible. And so there were, I think, five or six, uh, five or six people on my team from a couple of different uh, different institutions. And what we tried to get at was just what did the data show? And so the data shows, uh, they, they, it shows this, this Russian effort. It's very different on different platforms. And that's something that unfortunately gets lost quite a bit, particularly because unfortunately the Facebook data was never made public. The Twitter data was. And so there are a lot of conclusions that I think are drawn from the Twitter data that they behaved actually quite differently in Facebook. And so what they're doing on Facebook, Facebook is a place to build communities. Twitter is a place to have fights. And so on Twitter, you're having these kind of whatever the hot topic of the day is, the Russians go and fight about it. So funny enough, the, the vaccine stuff during the Disneyland measles outbreak becomes a fight that the Russians go and insert themselves into. And it's not very large. It's a, a couple thousand tweets. And so it doesn't even appear in the Facebook or Instagram or YouTube data because it wasn't a major thing for them. It was a thing that they, they, they would go and they would dabble in whatever the arena fight was on Twitter that day. On Facebook though, they spent a much, much, much uh, more sustained, much, much more sustained effort there trying to grow identity-based communities. And they would reinforce people's pride in the identity that they were targeting. Um, and then they would position those identities oppositionally. If you were a veteran, you had to be opposed to Muslims because there were refugees who were Muslim and they were taking your benefits. If you were a black American, obviously this was at a time of, of quite high racial tension. There were a number of, uh, you know, Mike Brown and, and a number of these officer involved shootings that took place around that time. And so they would run ads targeting cities that had had one of these shootings, uh, and then they would try to create, you know, to kind of exacerbate uh, racial tension in those, in those places. Now, 
the tension is real, right? There are many veterans who do not receive benefits and do not receive care. Uh, there are very plausible arguments to be made about um, you know, race relations in America and the very real grievances that, that these accounts begin to amplify and to exacerbate. But that's the dynamic primarily that takes place. And the political stuff gets layered on at the end. So it's not the main focus of the operation. And so it's been interesting to see the work that I did particularly by the Twitter files propagandists, reclassified as, um, oh, Duresta said the Russians elected President Trump. I said nothing of the sort because that's not actually in the data. And we, did, <laughs> we, just, we didn't even make that claim. We just said, here is objectively, here is what it shows. It shows a very sustained effort to try to demotivate voters for Secretary Clinton. And it shows a clear effort to try to actually demotivate, even in the primary, people who supported Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, and to redirect that support to Donald Trump. And so, again, this is objectively in the posts. Did it swing the election? We had no way of telling that. And my personal opinion is no, it did not. Uh, but that is, that is the Russia interference investigation. Over on the other side of government is the collusion investigation, which I had nothing to do with. <laughs> and I just read about it along with everybody else. Um, the areas in which there was some intersection, though, was the, that was interesting, was you do see uh, Mueller indict, a uh, couple, couple different indictments come down. And in one of them, uh, there's an indictment of the accountant and others who worked for um, Concord is the is Prigozhin's kind of uh, one of his shell company vehicle type things. And the Internet Research Agency, of course, is affiliated with this. And you do see in some of those documents, uh, it pointed out that they spent about $22 million uh, on this effort. So not the $100,000 number that's tossed around that's specific to the Facebook ads, but the $22 million refers to the entire scope of the operation, most of which did not involve the ads. It involved the creation of persuasive personas who could participate in the rumor mills and the Facebook groups and the other places where people form their opinions about the world and decide who to trust and where to engage. So I think I've uh, probably kind of um, talked for long enough now, but I think the, the one final point that I want to make, though, is, <laughs> is just that that engagement really becomes the thing that sort of sets them apart, right? They, they realize, hey, we've got this phenomenal tool. We can meet people where they are. And I think my, my remaining kind of concern is that as we point out the fact that, no, this did not swing an election, which, you know, to, to, in my opinion, has never really been in, in dispute, the idea that it had no impact at all is also wrong. The idea that it is not something that we should be inherently concerned about, in my opinion, again, is also wrong. And so that's where, I, I, unfortunately, it does require like a whole nuanced answer for you. And I'm sorry, I couldn't say that <laughs> in fewer words. To some extent, obviously, Renee, a lot of what you've just been saying is part of your 2018 uh, testimony, your expert testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was specifically about foreign influence on social media. And you had you had tracked a lot of what was going on with the IRA and the GRU. As all of this keeps unfolding, when we get to 2020, right? At that moment, we're, we're in an election year, the pandemic is raging, the term fake news, which had at that point often been used to describe false stories designed by foreign actors to specifically appeal to his supporters so as to generate clicks and ad revenue, 
has now been appropriated by Trump to smear America's free press in this proto-authoritarian way. And this stokes the flames of polarization and conspiracism, as exemplified by QAnon disinformation, jumping the rails from 4chan onto Facebook and Instagram, and then into CNN footage of MAGA rallies, and also into the really unhinged real-world violence that we started to see. As if that wasn't enough, and you've touched on this already, the other hugely significant cultural phenomenon is that the George Floyd protests are going on. I wanted to ask you between 2017 and that climax that we saw in 2020, how specifically was Russian interference interacting with and framing the narrative around Black Lives Matter? A lot. We we published a, an interesting paper on this. Probably most people are familiar that they were doing a lot of work to exacerbate tension, right? Just to any, any time that there was this potential tinderbox, uh, they were they were in it. It wasn't just Russia. I think it's important to note Iran did it and China did it as well. And that's because you have to think about this just from the standpoint of uh, geopolitical power games. Propaganda has always been used, you know, whenever you're uh, an ideological adversary or national adversary is um, is experiencing some sort of unrest that might lead to a change that is advantageous to you, or maybe just kind of the breakdown of their country or their governance system is advantageous to you. Uh, you can kind of throw gasoline on the fire. And this becomes something that we start to see state actors do. We can talk about U.S. operations at some point, maybe. But so as that's happening, Russia has now at this point become a, a subject of uh, what what the platforms call integrity teams that are looking for and trying to take down their networks as they spin up. And so these fake accounts, these individual people or the Facebook pages that become front media uh, vehicles are getting moderated away. And the platforms begin to get quite good at this, particularly around 2018. They begin to release the data to the public. They begin to write these reports on it. And so that dynamic really shifts. They, they do, in fact, begin to look for it, find it, and take it down. What you start to see happen, though, is new types of media pop up on new and emerging platforms. So TikTok becomes popular. And so you start to see these entities that wind up years later filing what are called Foreign Agent Registration Act, uh, FARA disclosure forms. In the early days of this of this unrest, um, these accounts become quite prominent as a new form of media, you know, new TikTok media, global leftist media that's kind of uh, pointing to what's happening in the U.S. as a um, as a thing that um, the U.S. should be ashamed of, and 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 it should, right? That's the that's the reality of it, right? You do have that grain of truth, and so a lot of the narratives really date back to the way the Russians leveraged racial unrest during the civil rights movement, where they say, "How can America?" Uh, sit on this moral high ground when, um, you know, there's a situation with the Scottsboro boys, you know, there's a phrase that the Soviets use, they put it on the propaganda uh, posters, and in your country, you lynch Negroes, right, is the is the phrase. And so they are using this as a, as a way to say, you know, wh why are we framing this um, capitalist communist tension, this, this, this Cold War, as if there is a clear country with a moral high ground when in reality uh, you treat your own people terribly, right? And, and this, of course, there is that grain of truth uh, in there. And so it becomes mm -hmm. a very, very highly effective um, highly effective narrative. And, that, and you see echoes of that from Russia, from China, from others uh, as, they, as their state media and then these kind of new front media, these semi-undeclared gray media outlets begin to become popular. Because again, the social media companies are trying to take down their fake accounts and their fake personas 
nobody just gives up and goes home. You know, it is a propaganda war. It is sort of constant roiling thing that is always happening uh, in varying degrees of, uh, of impact. Uh, but so you do see them just try to move to new platforms, new places where they're not going to get moderated as quickly or where they can uh, use different ways of, of engaging and getting their message out. So during this period, it's, it sounds like you're saying there are, there are several foreign actors that are wanting to stoke division around or, or like exacerbate the divisive uh, topic of uh, racial conflict already happening in the country. Are there specific ways that they did that? A lot. Of, so there were interesting ways that they did that. Um, some of it is we, we use this little rubric. We say overt to covert and then broadcast to social, right? And that's the kind of you can uh, we, we think about that as like a two by two. So you have their state media, which is very overt that writes articles and just articulates a very attributable state point of view. You have their overt social accounts in, in China, um, this kind of uh, class of accounts that comes to be called the Wolf Warriors, this very, very kind of Twitter personality kind of Ministry of Foreign Affairs accounts. Like they're really in there. Like they are getting in the fight. They're shitposting. There's memes. They're not the way, you know, you, you don't see this from American government officials. Like they haven't quite entered into this modern era, but the Chinese MFA guys, like they really just get into it. Their state media editors also create accounts that become quite popular around this time. And through, again, a, a combination of playing the Twitter game well, and then also what you have, the other kind of quadrant, the sort of covert social accounts, uh, which are the fake accounts, they, they are there really primarily to boost these other accounts, which are not going to be taken down because they are legitimate uh, speakers. And so you start to see the ways in which state actors realize, hey, maybe creating a whole bunch of fake accounts isn't necessarily doing the trick, but we can use these fake accounts to boost our real speakers. And so that, that dynamic begins to come into play. Um, and then you have what, what the kind of last quadrant, which is just the sort of uh, covert broadcast. And that's where you have the front media and the paid media. Um, and it begins to move into interesting spaces. You see China begin to offer to pay existing YouTube influencers to say favorable things about China on their programs. Um, you see, you see Russia do the same thing. Again, this, these are not new strategies. There has always been that dynamic of, you know, if you can't start the outlet, maybe you buy the outlet or you buy the people speaking on the outlet. And so you just see that, um, that, that strategic adaptation. So it's, it becomes more of a, it's a very holistic, um, a, a holistic thing. And so I think there's at times quite often an over-focus on the, you know, the kind of covert social bot accounts or Facebook personas or whatever, when what they're really doing is they're using all of these things in tandem. And the United States does this too, just to be clear. <laughs> um, but they use all of these things in tandem to to create favorable messages for themselves and to uh, and to and to exploit um, social turmoil in the countries that they want to destabilize. So I, I can't I can't let it slide. Uh, give give me some examples of how the U.S. does this. We did a report on this. The U.S. Pentagon had been running accounts as well, right? And again, some of these accounts. This was this was actually the most interesting part of the Twitter files <laughs> prior to the ones that I got mentioned in uh, was Lee Fang's. Um, analysis of, uh, of the, the situation with the Pentagon. So we called the report uh, Unheard Voice. If anybody wants to go and find it and take a look at it, we did it with this, uh, this company called Graphica that does social media research as well. There were, in, dating back to um, kind of the 2012 timeframe, 2015 timeframe, uh, there's this thing called the Trans-Regional Web Initiative, TRWI. 
And it was a series of uh, Pentagon-linked accounts that at the time, um, SOCOM, I believe it was, uh, were overt. Again, this the disclosures were properly there on the website. You had to kind of go into the about page to find them. But they were putting out the U.S. government's point of view in uh, Central Asia, in, I believe, Southeast Asia, some parts of the Middle East. And what they're doing is they're speaking to and about, they're speaking to local populations about the United States point of view. Now, sometimes what you see is the, again, the hallmarks of propaganda where you see things like some people are saying, right, is, is, uh, is, is one kind of red flag um, piece of rhetoric where they'll say border guards in this community in Afghanistan say that Iranians are sending back bodies of people killed in conflicts without their organs, right? So they allege that the Iranian regime is doing some sort of organ harvesting thing. And again, it's written not as this is a fact, but it is this person is saying, which is possibly true, possibly not, who knows. But that's how that kind of content begins to appear. Um, So they originally make these things as websites. And then what you start to see is Congress cuts funding in around 2015, uh, there's a dormancy period. These things disappear. But then they, a couple of years later, the infrastructure comes back and you can see things like uh, AdWords IDs and other um, other kind of technical links that, that indicate that these that there's some continuity between these uh, these websites, these efforts. And you start to see fake accounts associated as well. And there they are not disclosing that they are affiliated with Um, the Pentagon or SOCOM. And so there becomes a question of were the correct authorities pursued? You know, U.S. government does have certain authorities under which it can run psychological operations. In this case, we did not know whether they had been followed or not. So in, in certain situations, we will do an analysis of a network and we will say, this is our understanding. We will not make an attribution. We're actually really, really careful before we make an attribution saying, we believe this thing is this thing. There's a mini stage process that we go through to, to, to try to feel that we have the best possible understanding of that. And oftentimes that's where we would communicate with a social platform to say, do you also see this? What is your interpretation of the provenance of these accounts? Mm-hmm. And so the same, you know, the same thing with, we're not going to attribute something to the United States government uh, or a particular United States government contractor in that, in that way either. So what winds up happening is Washington Post uh, goes and does an investigation and gets a set of comments uh, indicating that, yes, in fact, um, they're going to do an investigation to see what happened here. Something, you know, didn't look like things were necessarily uh, entirely above board on that, on that particular set of projects. So that's one example of, of the kind of, uh, the kind of work that we do. We're interested in, we, you know, we are, <laughs> we are not a shop that goes out and like hunts for Russians, just to be clear. So <laughs> it's more a question of how does state actor influence work? Who is doing it? What does it look like? Is there evidence of inauthenticity? Is there evidence of these kind of uh, cross-pollination of overt, covert, broadcast, social kind of propaganda apparatus? And if so, you know, just for me as a researcher who studies propaganda, I'm, I'm very interested in that, whether it's coming from USG. Of course, there I feel a, a you know, a sense of um, a need to weigh in just as an American, like maybe we shouldn't be doing this, guys, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe, there are, maybe there are other ways uh, rather than kind of... Um, getting in the mud with a bunch of mediocre fake accounts. Maybe we could do this in other ways. Maybe we should think about countering foreign propaganda in, in other ways. And, and that was one of the things that I tried to get at actually in that, in that Senate testimony in 2018, which of course was years before I saw this stuff. Mm-hmm. But just that question of you can't do nothing. So 
what do you do? And that, that I think becomes, again, when I, when I said at the start of this, uh, of our chat, what do you want to happen? Um, that's really the question we need to be asking, given this understanding of the world, what is it that we want to happen? Speaking of hunting Russians, um, let's turn to Yevgeny Prigozhin. Mm -hmm. uh, he's sometimes referred to as Putin's chef because after nine years in prison as a young man, he went from selling hot dogs on the street to owning grocery stores and casinos and eventually upscale restaurants where he would cook for the Russian premier and his visiting dignitaries from time to time. He's recently become well known for some other reasons. What can you tell us about Yevgeny Prigozhin? So Prigozhin has a number of different entities that he, for a very, very long time, either denied existed, right? The Wagner Group legally is not supposed to exist in Russia. There's a ban on private military corporations, which is what, uh, for those who don't know, Wagner Group is, right? It goes and it fights in kinetic conflicts. Uh, so it is in it was in Syria, even though, of course, it did not exist. You know, it, it appears in uh, numerous places in Africa, Central African Republic being one, even though it does not exist. You know, and so there is this uh, much like the Internet Research Agency, which, again, there is always this sense of plausible deniability. Um, it it creates plausible deniability for the Russian government to use mercenary organizations, whether that is for the kind of propaganda contracting or, you know, the sort of social media manipulation that the Internet Research Agency does or the, the kind of kinetic operations um, that Wagner does. Uh, Prigozhin also has a few other, he's a kind of man of many talents, uh, many other various organizations that are linked to him. Um, foundations, and uh, a, a news a news outlet, uh, RA fan, um, and these things work in concert. So in around 2019, we were doing this investigation uh, into the GRU at the time, actually, to Russian military intelligence, and um, wound up one of our um, one of the other researchers on my team, Dr. Shelby Grossman, was looking at. At, uh, at media in, in Libya around the election and began to notice these pages. We did a, a pretty big report on them. We actually reached out to Facebook. We said, you know, I, I, these don't seem to be authentic. Um, they appear to be uh, quite, you know, so sometimes they would just say very, very favorable things about Prigozhin quite directly. Interestingly, there was not really a, a strong uh, effort to completely divorce the ties between the two things. And, and so in that particular case, uh, one of the questions became, how do you attribute this? And we went with um, entities, you know, and entities linked to Yevgeny Prigozhin because nobody could say these were Facebook pages and groups that were popping up in countries where Wagner had a presence on the ground. And so it appeared to be trying to bolster relations between the local publics and to make them feel more favorably about these, uh, you know, these Prigozhin's uh, involvement in the country, Russia's involvement in the country. Of course, in certain parts of, of Africa, you have Russia and China and France kind of in competition. So what you start to see again is, is these, uh, these tools are used to support some sort of real world power dynamic. And, uh, and so Prigozhin is a man who now has taken on a, a much uh, greater position of prominence uh, because both um, his media uh, kind of empire, but also his his kind of kinetic uh, teams, Wagner, are quite visibly involved in the Ukraine war. 
Uh, and, and so interestingly, he has begun to boast about his activities that he previously denied. This, I mean, the man is a, you know, a chronic, um, this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is not an honest person, right? This is a, this is a propagandist, yeah. but has begun to boast about his interference in U.S. politics and politics in various other uh, parts of the world uh, as well. I think he had a, you know, kind of interesting kind of phrasing he used. We did interfere, we will interfere, and we are interfering, right, was how he put it. And this made the statement sort of right before the U.S., um, 2022 elections. And so that got quite a bit of, uh, you know, major flurry of activity. I think it's really important to note, you never want to let the adversary turn themselves into this omnipotent, all-powerful, you know, highly effective presence. And that's, of course, what he's trying to do, because he also, that reputation now helps him uh, in domestic politics in Russia, as there are power struggles going on, as the Ukraine war uh, has been quite the debacle for them. And so, uh, so again, you never want to assume that um, that this quote unquote confession of, of you know, nefarious evil deeds being done in 2022 actually means anything uh, beyond the boasting of a propagandist. And so I think there, you should be able to hold two ideas in our head, which is that Interference is bad. It is a thing we should look for. It is a thing we should understand. If we do nothing, it grows like a cancer. But at the same time, it is not necessarily the be all end all of <laughs> threats facing, you know, the U.S. polity or impacting our domestic cohesion. And, and those two things are simultaneously true. Yeah, I've been uh, following him for a little while, and it's been fascinating to see him become more prominent. And part of how he's become more prominent is in this last November he started being open where before he had denied uh, th that he was the leader of Wagner and even saying that, that he created the Wagner group. He founded it, not this, this other person, Dmitry Utkin, who had been credited with that. And then just, right. just this past February, he started saying, the, I invented the Internet Research Agency. I, I funded it. I ran it for a long time. I was the boss. And yeah, it's hard to tell how much of that is, is him just you know, once it's like more of his propaganda in terms of now he has an agenda to become a more prominent figure on the world stage. I've seen that he's been having disputes with the uh, with the senior Russian military um, leaders. Uh, I've even heard some speculation that you know, if anyone's going to oust Putin, it, it might be him, and he might be the next leader of Russia, which which does seem pretty terrifying. And then to to what you were saying before, I'm with you in terms of holding those two things at the same time. It seems to me that more than more than swinging the election, part of the crisis that we're in is that we can't agree on the facts anymore. And we can't agree. Everyone's pointing the finger and saying that's propaganda. That's a narrative. You know, you're you're dishonest. You, your media source has been corrupted. I don't think that that situation has been created by foreign influence. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it, it um, exploits that situation and perhaps makes it worse. Uh, so, you know, I want to ask you by way of closing, as, as we find ourselves heading towards another election year uh, with Trump, who I would say is kind of the archetypal embodiment of what goes wrong when disinformation campaigns succeed, potentially running again. You know, I, I think if, if Schellenberger is right about anything, it's that you are at the forefront of something quite significant for our times. I see it as the battle to preserve democracy and the study of how corrosive digital, uh, of how corrosive digital disinformation really is, uh, how it can completely corrupt the cultural conversation 
not only on politics, but also on, on reality, on the reality that we inhabit together. What kind of closing remarks might you have for us about how to understand the current crisis and how to perhaps be on the right side of history? There was an effort in the 1930s by a bunch of academics and journalists to try to help just create population resilience by explaining how certain types of rhetoric worked. And that, I think, is the thing that is what's really needed today. It's sort of a similar model where people who are trusted by their communities become both the counter speakers, but also the educators, where we say, this is how you should think about when you, you know, you guys do this with your podcast. Here's how you should think about when you hear this type of rhetoric, when you see these types of words, this is what they actually mean. This is, you know, they're, they're, here's the thing that they're not saying that you should pick up on as a kind of red flag. So I think that the, the bringing that up, you know, doing that more, not through government, um, but rather through civil society organizations or, you know, artists, creators, people who have a position of trust with communities. I think a lot of it has to be done at that, that much smaller level. I, I think that the idea that we are going to rebuild trust because we're going to elect somebody new and all of a sudden you know, everything is going to reset itself to some halcyon days of old. Like that's just not going to happen. It's going to take work. And so that a lot of what we see our role doing in the projects we've done at SIO is to say, how can we, how can we help people understand what they need to counter speak about, right? How can we help um, identify people who are effective at counter speaking? How can we say, here's the structure and here's the substance and this is working and that's not. And can we make that process a little bit easier um, for the people who have to actually go and do the work. And, and that's, you know, that's what I, that's what I anticipate us doing in, in 2024 um, as well. So, you know, we are continuing to try to develop an understanding of how narratives work and what influences people and why they trust certain things. And that's going to keep going. Thank you everyone for listening to Conspirituality. We'll see you here again next week on the main feed or of course on the weekends or Monday on our other offerings. Mm-hmm.